If you would please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our series on living as exiles. And today, yes, the title of the message is Informed Obedience. And it sounds awfully stiff and I kind of hate that, but at the same time, it is appropriate for what this section of scripture really begins to deal with, which is simply us living holy lives. Now, I don't know about you, but in the church that I grew up in, when there was a lot of preaching or teaching on holiness, um, a lot of times it was very much divorced from what informs that, what actually brings us to that place. It was so much more about stop doing bad things. In fact, if I really think about it in my upbringing, even though I'm so grateful that the gospel was preached in the church that I grew up in, the truth is... um, it, it, it feels more like it was about conversions and then what discipleship there was, it was more about, again, not doing wrong things and then somehow you just might stumble into being happy in God. There wasn't a lot of talk on what it meant to be happy in God, what it meant to actually have joy in your walk. And so then there became this disparity where if you're going to be happy, well then that meant not necessarily being holy but just chilling out about certain things. and. And understanding that we have grace. And, so the, and then there becomes a debate, what? Which is on lordship debates. So then you have, you have all these, the pendulum just keeps swinging to these extremes of, okay, well, I'm not happy. So then I can just do stuff that the world does, but that's okay. I can slap an ichthus fish on whatever I do. It makes it Christian-ish. And, and, and God's good and it's fine. And so I can do what I want, but I'm a Christian. Well, then people react to that and they say, no, it's lordship salvation, which means basically you can't just have him as savior and not as Lord because some might claim, well, I had him as savior all this time, but he wasn't really ruling all of my life. Well, we were just giving all these different words to these various tensions that we feel to scripture. And the fact is, to some degree, it's all of that together. To another degree, if you parse out any of it, if you separate any of it, then you actually have something different altogether. What we have to avoid is for the pendulum in our lives, at least, to swing and and somewhat stick. So, for instance, we often do that in response to what we've been experiencing in life. We do that in response to what we've been experiencing in, for instance, if we go through a very difficult time or if we have children who have gone through serious long seasons of disobedience. Or if we start to just look at the political landscape and we just get just tick off the boxes on on just the morals, on the morality. There's lots of groups that can do that. See, the church that has been purchased by the blood of Christ distinctly has the words of life, not just moral behavior. Okay, there should be some sense that as we preach grace, that not unlike Paul, it would almost sound as if we are saying, You can do whatever you want to and you're still good. We're not saying that. But it should almost sound like that. Because as you look at the transition from Romans 5 to Romans 6, even the listeners are saying, are you saying that we should sin more because grace increases as as we do? And, And Paul says, well, no, I'm not saying that. But it should almost sound that way because that's how great his grace is. We have a greater Savior than we have great sin. And that is such good news. And yet, that grace actually informs our lifestyles, our conduct. 
but not in a way that is resistant. It should be more in a way that is expressive of the beauty and the glory of God that has been awakened to us by the Spirit. As we've been saying, that's what I mean by informed obedience. We have something that goes behind our obedience, a grace, a Savior. So let's look at the text. Let me first read the text that we're going to be looking at today. And I'm going to read prior to that. Verse 13. We'll look at verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, when he says therefore in verse 13, let's go ahead and read what leads to that, which is verses 1 through 12. Okay? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, remember that phrase, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, like when he was raised from the dead and ascended and is seated at the right hand, and then will return. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that you have now been, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And then, therefore. So all of that fuels this statement. All of that fuels what we're looking at in verses 13 through 16. It's the result of verses 1 through 12 is 13 through 16. The cause the enablement, the empowerment of everything that is said in verses 13 through 16 is in verses 1 through 12. And to recapture that understanding, again, Peter, in light of people who are suffering and going through many trials presently, even persecuted for their faith, 
He is reminding them that they are citizens of another kingdom, that this is not home, and they shouldn't be surprised at what they're going through, and yet there is hope for what they're going through. But that hope isn't in necessarily the relief of the trial. Because when Peter says, if even now, just for a little while, you are experiencing grief as a result of various trials, that little while is juxtaposed to eternity. So for some, that little while could be almost the entire dash between birth date and date of death. We are not guaranteed hope of relief of present suffering. But we are guaranteed, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are absolutely guaranteed the hope of looking forward to, yes, the relief of present sufferings, but more so the realization that faith gives way to sight and we actually then are in the presence of the one who has been preserving our inheritance and also preparing us for our inheritance all along. Our hope is in kingdom come. Our hope is in the revelation of Christ to come. And as he says this twice in this section, but then also he says earlier to obtain the salvation of your souls, that is also another way of saying that one day faith gives way to sight. Not that you'll be saved down the road if you do these things now. No, he is saying as you are preserved, the ultimate salvation is seeing Christ face to face. If he has called you and he has caused you to realize that you are a sinner in need of a savior and you have confessed to him your desire to turn away from sin and the hope in this world, which is not any, to the hope that is in him that is full, believing that he is alive and raised from the dead, you will be saved and you are genuinely born again. But the ultimate salvation is when he comes or when we leave this world. All of that fuels present obedience and here's what it tells me now I want you to remember this our future hope is expressed in present holiness our future I'm not saying it's dependent upon I'm saying our future hope is expressed in present holiness guys this makes so much sense and it's been The week was short. It was kind of choppy getting back in town. And it has just been so rich to just see the connection again that when God has ransomed us out of a world and made us citizens of heaven, that holiness, that very word meaning to cut off or to separate, it means that we live according to the standards of otherworldliness. Just as God is holy and is separate from everything in this world, We are called to live according to his standard while in this world. We are going to look and sound odd. No, again, we don't and should not be jerks because one thing you're going to see in the process is even the word when he says all your conduct, that includes all of the means, not just the ends. You don't get to say, I am pro-life, kill all the abortionists. We don't get to check the moral boxes, but then use the means and the methods of the world to accomplish it. That's not holiness. Well, if I haven't meddled enough, let's go ahead and let the text go ahead and do it even further. In order to have this understanding that we are to live in a holy way, we have to understand really just two things, at least according to this text. 
We need the right mindset. And we also need to make sure that we embrace and understand our new identity in Christ. Okay? So let's look first at the hopeful mindset that we have in verse 13. Therefore, and these are participles, okay? These are just descriptors of the only imperative that we have here. And the imperative is to set your hope fully. That's the imperative. That's the command. But all these other things are participles that just simply define or describe what that looks like. So he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, then the imperative, set your hope fully, then you have the prepositional phrase, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are commanded to look forward to the coming of Christ and all that that means, okay? Again, you've heard me say the phrase that I think is second dumbest, is the so heavenly-minded, no earthly good. If you mean that, and it's not biblically informed, then I, I can get, I can understand that, where you're basically completely indifferent to things in this world. I, c- I could understand the meaning of it then, but if we're talking biblically, then you looking forward to the coming of Christ includes with it this information and truth and understanding that the reason he hasn't come yet is because there are still more to come, more to be brought in, and there's still a purification he's doing among his own people in the process. And you also know that as you wait, you are to live in a particular way, which is what he's addressing in particular right now. In fact, Peter is saying that trials and tribulations and persecutions occur to purify the people of God as they live hope-filled lives in the midst of a world that is against them. To have this right mindset, we have to first of all really understand What is the reason for this? Well, that's verses 1 through 12. So what does that mean then when we say preparing your minds for action? What are you preparing your minds to do? And really this phrase is, it's a little bit unusual, but you've you've probably heard the phrase used in Scripture to gird up your loins. But this literally means to gird up the loins of your mind. Now that's kind of odd, but basically if you have been in church long enough to hear a little bit of history of this, you know, men wore tunics, they, they wore very loose-fitting clothes. In order to do anything of action, they had to, I shouldn't have stepped out because I'm going to be tempted to actually show you what it looks like, but I'm not going to do that. So I'll just step right back here and go ahead and tell you that what they would do is they would take part of the cloth and they would make sure it came up around underneath their legs and cinch it off around some kind of waist belt or tie-off that they would use so that they could move, okay? Whether that was for war Or even in running a race, so to speak, in a competition, in an athletic event, which they had. But any movement at all required a measure of preparation. And what it did was, it literally, for us, it's not quite the same because there's some serious injury that could occur if you don't gird up your loins and the loins of your mind in this sense. But there's also this other kind of, you know, when you're looking at dictionaries, you see like the second definition. A second definition may be to roll up your sleeves. So there's kind of this combined effect of you are preparing yourself. You're thinking through intentionally about what you're about to do. Okay? And in that preparation, then you're doing everything necessary to get ready. I got to stop using my hands because it's just evoking mental pictures for me of what that would look like. So, um, but I know my kids, they're just, they live face-palmed. They really do. My kids do. Um, but there's also this mentality of 
in my preparation, yes, this is going to be the work. This is the work set before me. Okay? So, but it's not just this pull yourself up by your bootstraps, kind of this Western idea. It truly is informed about everything you're about to do. And it's also understanding that you don't want any hindrances to what's about to, to any of the possibilities of what you have to enact. To gird up the loins of your mind means to get ready, but to get ready in every way. So when he adds that phrase of your mind, it's to bring in all the information of what's happened in verses one through 12 to remember who you were before you were saved how you were saved. He called us. He caused us to be born again. Could not be more of a gracious and merciful enactment. To remember what we're saved from, death, hell, hopelessness in this world as well. Not to mention again the hell of eternity, but also what we are saved for. This inheritance to come, but in the meantime for hope now. All of that is part of preparing your mind for So again, think about it. If you're preparing yourself for living a holy life, and yes, it's going to look moral, but if you're informing all of those actions, all of those behaviors, all of that conduct with what it means to be truly born again, guys, it will affect your attitude in your morality. It'll affect your demeanor. It'll affect your empathy, your sympathy for others. It might even affect how you treat people that you look upon as grossly immoral and replace it with a deep-seated, spiritually infused sadness. How could you possibly expect them to live differently any more than you actually think you would apart from the grace of God, that doesn't mean that you don't share moral ground with those who are unsaved. The politics of the last many, many years have proven that we will sacrifice all manner of common belief for the sake of a moral high ground. The problem for the church is, is that to do that moral high ground, we often have adopted the way that the world does it. And they will fight and they will degrade, they will speak ill of, and they say the end justifies the means. And there is nothing about God that says the end justifies the means. Unless you're talking about literally the justification by faith alone through Christ's atoning work. That's the only justification but even then the means mattered, right? Do you want to talk to the Exodus generation about, oh, it's just the end justifies the means, whatever it takes to get there. Have you looked at your Bible maps lately? Probably not, but if you do, and really look at the children in the wilderness, there was A to B, there, a couple of times they were just miles away. Like not, not many miles. God decided a 40-year path was better. In large part, yes, in response to disobedience along the way, but not as if that's outside of what God knew. Holy conduct is informed by what it means to be born again. And if we don't remember, see, 
my thing is when we live moral lives, but we do so with a worldly spirit and attitude, that's being informed by some sense that you actually deserve to be saved. See, when a person acts like that or a pastor acts like that, and I hear a lot of pastors talking like that now as they've decided to jump on a lot of political bandwagons, and I may share some of their kind of tick boxes of moral, you know, what's morally sound and good, but the fact is they completely, completely both downgrade and perhaps even completely shift to a different gospel altogether when they choose to use the world's means and methods and language to promote their point. Jesus did not. The word of God does not. We have to understand the reason behind this mindset. We have to get ready and part of getting ready is remembering that we have been gathered up by God's gracious and merciful calling. This being sober-minded means that we, our heads are clear But what's it clear of? It's clear of being infused or informed by lesser things. That doesn't mean you can't watch movies or listen to music or whatever. It just simply means that when it comes to living out your life, in fact, it would mean that the filter through which you would use to watch certain movies or listen to music or what you're allowing to be part of the flow of your life, the conduct of your life, is informed by the fact that you have been saved redeemed from sin and are you then celebrating the very things that Christ died for? Or, you know, is there room? And I'm not making a call one way or the other. I'm simply saying for you, at least be messed with a little bit. Allow all of what it means to be redeemed to mess with your head enough to think, should I do this? Or, yes, I should do this, but should I do it this way? Think about that before you jump on Twitter and hit like, or get on Facebook and and just post, repost um, some random news outlet that no one's ever heard of and just claim that it's true. The world wants to know if we are people of truth. We have to get ready, and this hopeful mindset means that we will decidedly say, my hope is going to be fixed on the fact that Christ is coming for his own. And in the meantime, I'm going to get ready to live like I should until he comes. And doing so, that is informed by my understanding that I am born again by the gracious and sovereign work of a living God through the person of Jesus Christ. That informs my conduct. That's what I'm ready for. That, that is going to show that I'm hopeful for a world to come, is that I live otherworldly now. Do you think it's natural to the world to take a verbal hit from the other side and still speak grace and mercy? Mm-mm. No, they recognize though if you come back with a jab. That sounds awful a lot like them. Let's think about what it means to live otherworldly. But part of that is understanding our new identity because he goes on and and really just in many ways looks at a different angle of verses 1 through 12 in verses 14 through uh, through 16. So it's not just this hopeful mindset that means getting ready in light of our true salvation and being determined, yes, I will set my hope on 
Christ and his return. I am focused there. I'm fixated there. But all that I do while I'm waiting is informed by all that he's done in eternity past to save me. And in verse 14, he says, as obedient children. So he gives us some, not parameters, but he just gives us some description of what it looks like to live out this life. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Well, first of all, that means our new identity is we're children now. What does he say? As obedient children. We don't have time to do a little mini study of what it means to be adopted, but you have been adopted. You were not naturally born a Christian. I don't care who your mama is, who your grandmother is. I don't care what it says in the family Bible. You were not born into the Christ life. You were reborn into that, but having been dead, not a heart beating fetus, dead, resurrected. But he's adopted you. He's made you his own. And so you're, when he did that, even though you were still walking around, there were different desires. When he gave you new birth, he gave you new, a new palate, new tastes. It's not perfect. It will get there. But a new Christian, even a Brandon who knows very little, they know that something has changed about what they want. And too often older Christians are too discouraging of young Christians because we think that the vibrancy of their new faith will just kind of settle down a little bit. And it's so sad. I'll never forget, you know, when Jane and I were uh, about to be married, and, and any of you that are either engaged or if you uh, were recently married, you know how much unsolicited advice you get. Tons of unsolicited advice. And I will never forget that um, in the process, I was, you know, just telling this guy how, you know, excited I was to, to get married and we were just looking forward to so much. And it wasn't a mentor type. This was just a, a random older guy at church. And he said, he said, well, just, you know, that'll be exciting for a while, but it'll settle down. And, I, and I'm just walking away. And I'm just going, it sounds like you need to go spend some time with your woman. You know, I'm just, I'm just thinking he needs to go have a vacation. He needs to just, you know, I don't know. There's just, there was a lot of backloaded bitterness in whatever he didn't experience in his life. And, and I mean, I do get some of what he's saying, but the truth is we become very discouraging, which does remind me, even though that's kind of a, a lighthearted anecdote, the fact is, I think it's really It's more than distasteful. It is, I don't, I don't know that I want to say borderline evil, but for a Christian to distill hopelessness to others. Like living the Christian faith or having actual joy in a Christian marriage or have, to basically just let the world so beat you down, it, it just tells me that that Christian has tried to find way too much hope in this world. And has stopped looking forward to the next. You don't have to become the curmudgeon. You don't have to become the one who just simply stares down at everyone else who's hopeful and just decries it because they just haven't lived enough life yet to be injured enough. In many ways, and any of you that have read Corey Tinboon's book, you would know that those who have been injured the most find some of the deepest joys in looking forward to the person of Christ. We have to embrace our new identity that we have been adopted as children 
no child, even in this world, adopted, you know, they all would say, hey, take me, take me. But that's not how it works. God reached in and took us, saved us. We didn't deserve it. We were just simply helpless. And he saved. That by itself is hopeful, right? Because what did he say before about children? Inheritance. Remember the previous verses? We have an inheritance. It's been kept for us. It's pure. It's undefiled. It's untouched. But we're also being prepared for it. Heirs are children. So in the meantime, as you obey, here's what he says. First of all, you do need to remember the way that you were. But not for the purpose of actually doing those things. Actually, to the purpose of understanding that the desire to do any of those old things now... It's just a ghost of some things that were old. So basically he says, your old nature, what you used to do when you were ignorant of being an adopted child, basically when you were an orphan, just, just feeding yourself from just base passions and lusts and whatever. But that's not the case anymore. So don't fulfill your desires that way. See, the thing is about people who aren't adopted children They're trying to find hope in this world, right? Because they don't have hope in another. But we know better. Not because we're better, not because we're smarter, but just simply because we've been saved. Because we've been saved, then in that we should practice differently. We shouldn't do the things that we did in our base desires. So basically when he says to reject those old desires and those old behaviors. We were ignorant to be a person filled with lust or be a person that just loves food or just craves money or material things. Just basically these these worldly desires and gather them up for themselves either through experiences or actual possessions. Whatever the case is, that is all fueled by ignorance. It's fueled by a lack of hope. But that's not you, church. You have hope. You have a new identity. And that's where he goes. He says, you don't fulfill that. He says, but, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So remember the old, but reject it because the old things that you did, even if you were a child, you know, a lot of us were saved young. And I get that. But even as a young Christian, you probably had enough experiences with some old desires to get a decent idea of what you would have been like without Jesus. I mean, maybe just a little, some of you, maybe a lot. But you still know that it was an old way. You still know that it was a hopeless pursuit. But he says no. But, but how does he say the new identity? This is interesting. Instead of saying no, instead you need to behave like this. No, what he says is, remember the old and reject it. But the new is this. The new is all about the identity of the one who has saved you. It's part of your nature. As he who called you is holy. This simile, this like connection that he makes. As he is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. All your conduct. All of it. All the way that you do it, all of what you technically do, all of it. Because that's God's nature. Now, are you going to do it perfectly? No. 
Not yet. But as a child, you now share a spiritual DNA with Christ. Whereas before you had no, no ability whatsoever to do things that were holy and good. Now look, lost people can do good things, right? But what do we know about the good things that they do? They do it for what? Wrong reasons. They do it to feel good about themselves. It's not for the glory of God. If it's not for the glory of God, then even though it may be good for us in this world, and God can certainly use to preserve society through even lost people, just like he does through governments, that it can protect and, and create some kind of civility. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's a God-honoring kind of grace that's going on. For the Christian, though, we should be about his glory in all that we do, in everything that we do. And now we have, because of Christ and the Spirit of God indwelling us, now we have the ability to live out the nature of the one who has saved us. So basically, we are now free from being shackled by no choices, essentially, either do bad things for bad reasons or do good things for bad reasons, but essentially no real choice. Now we actually, because of the Spirit of God living inside of you as an adopted child of God, are free to actually live holy, to do it for holy reasons and to do a holy thing. But again, remember the backdrop of what Peter is saying. You do this and it may be painful. He is encouraging them to continue steadfast in a pattern that has actually led to them being persecuted. How can they do that? Because the payoff is not in this world. That's what he says, right? Set your hope fully on the revelation of Christ. When he returns, when he comes for his own. We have to remember this when we get down into the very deepest part of the trenches of living a holy life now. Well, we're not getting anything done doing it the, the old nice way. So we're just going to have to do it the mean way. Look. Governments and political parties may think that way. The church and Christians should not. When we were in the trenches, we remind each other to live peaceable lives. We remind each other to be gracious. We remind each other to lament and be sorrowful for the lost, not demand that they live holy, pure lives without Christ. This infuses even our evangelism. It affects our evangelism. That church ends up becoming the kind of church that will do all manner of merciful works in their community just to gain hearing from one or two people. It's worth it. We have to gut it out. This is why he begins by saying, set your hope fully. Because it's not going to be easy at all. And they're experiencing this. So we remember the old, we embrace the new, and we live it in all of our conduct. That, again, social media, political interactions, our family lives, where we can, can become so lazy in our speech, even at work. This idea that we're living holy lives, again, this is according to the standard of the one who has saved us because he is holy. And then how does he support it? He supports it in the way that the verses before, remember the verses before that infused verses 13 through 16, when he talks about that the prophets 
would search and they would seek and they would try to find out in which the spirit of Christ that was working in them was talking about the people it was serving, that it was actually serving them. So he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the writers of the Old Testament. As they're writing the Old Testament, they're actually serving us by making the connection that every promise that God made was to be made in and through the person of Jesus Christ. That covenant-keeping promise was going to be fulfilled through the person of Christ on their behalf. But you know what I think is so intriguing? that it, First of all, it's not intriguing. It totally makes sense that he would then quote the Old Testament to support the charge to be holy. But what's interesting is the quote doesn't come from, it actually comes from a prophet, but not a book that you would consider prophetic. It comes from Leviticus. Leviticus. Three times in Leviticus you have, be holy for I'm holy. And as he does this, if you know much about Leviticus, it's not just about all that you can't do. It's even about the stuff that if you accidentally do it, you still have to be cleansed, even if your intent was pure and good. I'll just give you a quick example. So let's say that you see someone who is dying, or you think is dying. Now, I'm not saying they had a big CPR push or program back in the day, but let's just speculate that they did. And if they did and they ran into that person, they actually would give CPR. But let's just say the person was actually already dead. They just didn't know it. They're trying to revive him, right? They had to then go have something slaughtered and put and sacrificed on their behalf. Why? Because they touched something dead, even though the intent was to enliven it. This wasn't about God being mean or picky. It was about his nature and his character being holy. One thing I find intriguing is that as I was preaching through Leviticus, uh, a guy that became a dear friend and a guy that I was blessed to disciple for years was a doctor who came to Christ through Leviticus because he didn't necessarily have the God complex in a, pro, in, a, uh, in a proud kind of way before people. It was more of an internal one of he wanted to help people thinking he would help himself be okay for later, if that makes sense. He kind of had a religious background. But even the accidental sins, the incidental sins that needed cleansing, he realized that even his motivation, and it just convicted him. Now, we were cross-referencing a lot with Hebrews, so, you know, it wasn't just Leviticus only. But still, there was just this connection that he made that, that even his best intention was actually unholy because of God's nature, and he just couldn't measure up. So, it's interesting here that the, the writer would say that, that Peter would give us this view, this three times quoted in Leviticus statement of be holy because I am holy that it goes down to things that we are just unable and incapable of actually protecting and guarding ourselves against we had to have someone else do it for us Christ was tempted in every way before his ministry started 40 days of temptation yet without sin not in spirit not in attitude nothing not in complaint and certainly not in action even when he was being beaten, scourged, executed, no sin at all. Christ fulfilled the holy requirement that God has for his people for us. And when you are called to salvation, as Peter talks about, and you are born again to this new life, you now actually have someone who's already accomplished that perfect holiness of God. So positionally, you're already holy, guys. You are saints. 
Practically, however, in this world, we are still kind of sainting out a little bit. Our holiness is being worked out. But make no mistake, your hope in Christ is reflected in your holy pursuits. Someone who runs to sin is showing hopelessness. They're showing a lack of faith. All sin is a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith and hope that Christ is going to keep his promises. Maybe even in this world, we, we lust, we, we have immoral relationships because we don't trust that if God were to provide a spouse, that it would be in time, as if that's what it's all about anyway. But since we don't trust, we shortcut that and just decide that under intimacy, maybe God would be okay with it. But no, he's not. We show our lack of hope and lack of trust in him by trying to be hopeful in something here and now. And essentially then what we're doing is trying to make kingdom of heaven on earth, but by our standards. Unholy living, living sinfully, being just riddled with addictions like alcoholism or even pornography is just all an expression of hopelessness. You're either anesthetizing or at least trying to find some kind of relief from your hopelessness. So therefore what I'm telling you practically speaking for many of you who have been battling addictions and different sinful besetting type habitual sins for so long, I would encourage you and you've, maybe you've tried so many different tactics and so many different books, and I get that. And I'm not saying this is, there's really no kind of silver bullet thing, but I would at least say this, try this. Renew your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Renew what it means to positionally and in your new identity have hope in a Christ to come. Inform your behavior with your salvation. Maybe the next book doesn't need to be how to stop looking at porn. Maybe your next book needs to be just a wonderful book. Um, just one that comes to mind is Finally Alive by John Piper, which is just an, an explanation of the Gospel of John. But it's a beautiful, brief explanation of what happens to you in salvation. In a sense, hack your behavior by reminding yourself of what should fuel your behavior. And then see if some desires don't change while, yes, attacking the patterns. Yes, cut off the hand, so to speak. Turn off the computer screen. Don't take your phone into private places, whatever the case is. Or, or make sure that if the alcoholism is an issue, then you make sure that you, are, you do have some accountability and you are curbing the practice. But make sure that simultaneously you are understanding better the hope that you should have in Christ Jesus. And see if that doesn't end up producing true transformation. If it's just behavioral change, you're approaching it from the way the world does and eventually you'll just find a different hope. So with all this, I just simply want to say, remember who saved you. Remember how he saved you. It was gracious. It was sovereign. Remember what he saved you from. You were in ignorance. You were pursuing just passions and things of this world. And remember what he saved you to, an inheritance that he has kept for you. And in light of that, 
set your hope fully. Prepare, get ready, equip yourself with the Word of God, pray, do the basics, but be ready for any and all kind of action and even reaction to things in this world. Be ready for it because you are born again to a living hope that is still yet to be fully realized. Bring all that together and get ready. But it's not get ready as if rah, rah, let's go out of the tunnel and we've got a crowd cheering for us. No, it's because they're walking through deep waters of being persecuted by the world and hated. And Peter in many ways is saying, keep going like you are. Which may mean your circumstances don't change. But what will change is your endurance. You'll have longer hope, more stretched out hope. And then one day you will be able to give a great gift to those around you. When you die, or we will celebrate together as we are ascending into the air. We have an informed obedience, but it is something so much greater than mere moral behavior. I would encourage you that if maybe you're here today and being at church today for you is part of you trying to change your behavior. I want to tell you, we're glad that you're here but what we want you to hear today is there's no real change nor is there real hope apart from first understanding that you can't actually give yourself any in fact you're incapable of real change I know it sounds discouraging but the hope flip side of that is in Christ alone Acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of a perfect Savior. Confessing your sin to Him. Saying that you will follow Him. You don't know what all that looks like, but you know that because now you have the Spirit of God, you're not in ignorance. You know that it's going to be Him, so He's going to lead you according to His Word in the community of saints of a local church, and you're just going to start. And now there's hope. But I don't want to give you any false hope in that your hurt and your sufferings will be over. They probably won't be. You say, well, what's the point? Well, the point actually is then, what would it be like to actually have hope and understand that even when you have questions, there's a deep-seated purpose for everything that you go through? And ultimately, it actually is for your good. It's just that good is for eternity, maybe not in this world. But don't worry, because the Spirit of God will give you that perspective. And Christian, if you don't have that perspective, it's because you have decided to read or maybe watch more news outlets than you are in the Word, or maybe look more into the, and get riled up about things in this world that are falling apart more so than what is being kept for you undefiled, unfalling apart in heaven. And remember that maybe that will just tone some things down enough for you to realize, man, there's a lot of hurting people right around me. And they don't have to agree with my ideology for me to want to be kind and to share the gospel with them. Hope. But hope is lived out in our holiness. And our holiness is informed by being saved by a sovereign and gracious God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercies to us. Lord, I pray that if there is indeed anyone here who is unsaved, maybe are, they are trying to give themselves hope by doing morally good things like going to church, I still pray that you would help them realize that 
them being here isn't the thing that gives them hope. It's actually the message that has now been proclaimed of, of the gospel that Christ, you alone can give that, that perhaps even this morning they may come to you by grace through faith alone in a living Christ. Lord, I pray that you would mess with them enough to speak to one of us about what that means for them and that perhaps some will even be brought to faith now. Lord, for the Christian, I think this is most of us in the room, I pray that you would remind us to understand what holy conduct actually means in all of our, not just actions and not all of our beliefs, but even how we go about those actions, how we go about those beliefs, and how we interact even with a lost world. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand biblically what it looks like to have our hopes set fully on your revelation that's to come and how that changes how we live now. And we might even hear testimony of people being freed, not because of this message as I've done it, but as your word makes an impact in their life, that people are being set free of addictions, alcoholism and pornography and other things that have beset them, that they would realize that is actually an expression of hopelessness. It's not just a desire, it's actually I'm hopeless. Why? Lord, for some, they may realize they've never been born again. Others, though, Lord, they may realize that they've just simply forsaken the basics of being in your word and praying. And as you reinfuse hope, they have a distaste for those unholy things. Lord, may it be in all of us so that we may be a relevant light to this world and especially to our community for your glory. And may it be so even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.